Two and a Half Admins, episode 127. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your Clara plug this time is OpenZFS, data security versus integrity. Yeah, so people often kind of conflate these two things sometimes because they, they kind of come together as a package. But we thought it'd be good to explain the difference between data security and data integrity and talk a little bit about how ZFS does both. And so if you're interested in keeping your data both correct and secure, check out the article and it will explain the differences and how it is implemented in in both cases. Well, link in the show notes as usual. It pains me to say anything bad about the EFF because they do a lot of great work. But their recent post, Why Public Wi-Fi is a lot safer than you think, wasn't great. No, it it really wasn't. The title of the article and even the idea behind it is is like a so far so good, but I found the article itself well, like you said, not so great. The basic idea is that because HTTPS encryption is on for effectively pretty much any site in the world, not counting allenjude.com, that you don't need to worry <laughs> about a lack of security in your public Wi-Fi because somebody else being on the same public Wi-Fi as you can't just easily man in the middle you. Modern encryption schemes have separate keys for separate users. So just because somebody else is on the same network doesn't give them access to your stuff. And also because since everything is HTTPS encrypted for the most part, that means that even if you end up on a network that's actually owned by somebody malicious and they own the router and can see all your traffic going through it, the idea is that they can't effectively man in the middle of you. Where this falls down is there are still lots of services that most people are using and rely on very critically that are not encrypted, the first and foremost being DNS. Some people are using DNS over TLS or DNS over HTTPS, which solves a lot of those problems, but I don't think that you can credibly argue that even a strong plurality of users is fully encrypted for everything. And if you have any mission-critical unencrypted traffic going out on your Wi-Fi connection, then it's not safe to be using public Wi-Fi. Yeah, like I can see their point that the older bugaboo of somebody just being able to see your password as it floats by in the air is much less of a thing now with HTTPS, but it doesn't, like you say, solve the privacy concerns of they can tell what website you're going to even if they can't tell what you're doing there. Well, and they may very well be able to tell exactly what you're doing there because there may not be where you intended to go in the first place. If the Wi-Fi network that you join has malicious DNS, well, it's very easy to hijack your attempt to go to gmail.com and send you to a puny code domain instead. And you may very well have a perfectly legitimate cert on that puny code domain, or you may have no cert and a browser that doesn't just absolutely refuse to let you proceed without one, in which case, before you know it, you've typed in your Gmail password to gma1l.com. Yeah, that's true. So while uh, TLS is going to prevent, and the certificate is going to prevent them spoofing Gmail, they can still spoof your eyeballs with, you know, PayPal spelled with the Russian letter A for one of them that looks the same on your screen, but isn't the same as far as the computer's concerned and things like that. And, you know, they talked about how a lot of the adoption of HTTPS is because of Let's Encrypt, which EFF helped with and, you know, went and wrote CertBot for it. And yeah, I would say a lot of the adoption of HTTPS is because of that effort. Not all the credit goes to EFF, but a bunch of it does. But to Jim's point, 
while it's great and it makes using public Wi-Fi a lot less of an issue, it definitely doesn't erase all of the issues. Yeah, it is a very true statement that public Wi-Fi is safer than it used to be. It certainly requires more effort from an attacker to own you just because you joined the wrong Wi-Fi network. But that doesn't make it safe. The word public, I, I think, may be doing a little bit too much heavy lifting there. I think there are a lot of people who will get confused over the difference between a completely unencrypted Wi-Fi network or one that does have a key, but, you know, you can get the key from the barista at Starbucks or, or whatever. And there's not really a meaningful security distinction at this point. If you're joining a Wi-Fi network in a public place, whether the network is public or not, you're opening yourself up to the risk that somebody nearby you is going to have a device like a Wi-Fi pineapple that Pineapple is going to be able to intercept your attempt to join that particular Wi-Fi network, join you to its Wi-Fi network instead, and now your traffic is passing through the hands of that man in the middle that you wanted to avoid in the first place. And again, the degree of difficulty the man in the middle has in owning you has gone up, but that does not mean that you're just safe. So if you have any privacy concerns, any security concerns whatsoever about joining Wi-Fi in public places that untrusted people might know about and be able to set up a pineapple, then you still should be doing the same thing that you should have been doing 10 years ago, which is immediately start up a VPN and don't do anything outside the VPN while you're on that untrusted network. So the final sentence of the article, there are plenty of things in life to worry about. You can cross public Wi-Fi off your list. It's still not quite true, is it? And it's it's a little bit irresponsible to say that. It's not at all true. You can feel less nervous about public Wi-Fi, but you certainly can't cross it off of your list of things to be concerned about. Yeah. Maybe it moved down the list with HTTPS being quite widespread, but I don't think there's ever going to be a point where you can cross it off unless you're just like, I'm never going to connect again or something. Because if you cross it off your list, you're just going to have to add it back when something else changes about it. The kind of interesting thought I had about it, thinking about my own use of it, is just if I'm more concerned about my phone and my laptop when connecting to the public Wi-Fi's. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely both just for different reasons. And in both cases, the answer is WireGuard. It really is. I mean, that is truly the silver bullet to this particular problem. If you are at all concerned that you might be on an untrustworthy network, public or private, wired or Wi-Fi, that part doesn't matter. Just... If you're not certain that there is no black hat who can potentially man in the middle of your traffic, then you should be initiating a WireGuard connection to a raw IP address, not to a DNS-resolved name. And if you're doing that, there's not really any way to beat that from the attacker side. If the very first thing you do is initiate that WireGuard tunnel to a raw IP address on the other end, then you're good at that point. Yeah, either it'll connect or it won't. And if it doesn't, then your internet doesn't work. Yeah, because if the attacker can man in the middle your attempt to establish a WireGuard connection to a raw IP address and successfully establish that connection to them instead of to what your endpoint should have been, you were already owned. That particular session doesn't really matter. They would have to compromise the private key of your WireGuard server to be able to do that. So Yeah, and in InfoSec terms, uh, that guy's already sitting in your mama's kitchen eating her cookies. Well, you know, to your point, it's like, unless you're certain that a black hat can't, it's like, so just always, because if you're certain that a black hat can't something, then you're wrong. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. 
Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Tobias Mann wrote on the register, years late and 36 cores short of AMD. Who are Intel's fourth gen Xeons even for? I can answer that very briefly. Intel's fourth generation Xeons are for data center managers who already have large fleets of Xeon machines. In my experience, very few data center admins are willing to mix CPU vendors in the same fleet of machines. So once they've got several hundred or several thousand physical servers that are all running Xeons, when they buy new machines, they will also be running Xeons. If it were not for that tendency to stick to one CPU vendor, I think Intel's fortunes already would have fallen tremendously farther than they have. Why is that? Because it's the whole ecosystem around it. It's probably more of what we want, the kind of the same motherboard that we've been using. Maybe it's a newer vision of it that holds a newer socket, but we want the same features and such. And even if our integrator has an AMD board, it's going to use different NICs and different disk controllers than the Intel one did. So it wouldn't be changing just the CPU. Right, yeah. And so it's more about, I want the whole ecosystem around the servers to be as common as possible. I want to share common spare parts and power supplies and everything. And as soon as you start looking at a very different thing, it can often be quite different. I think AMD has done a pretty good job at this point of overcoming some of that momentum by offering, you know, PCIe 5 faster and better RAM faster and and just better many things. The secure encrypted virtualization support. Oh, my God. Night and day. AMD is killing Intel on that. But yeah, ultimately, uh, Intel CPUs are for Intel customers who don't want to switch. That's not to say that Intel hasn't been doing useful work and creating useful new features. They have, but it seems fairly obvious that if you were to come into the game brand new right now and just look at the feature sets and the pricing and everything else that makes up you know, an Epic or a Xeon, I don't think many people would be choosing to step into Xeon on day one. Oh, I hate to say this. I don't want to be this mean to Intel, so don't take it too harshly. But it's kind of like asking the question, like, who are Oracle's new customers, right? <laughs> they don't have them. They, they have people that have been locked into them for decades and can't overcome the technical debt to escape. And to a large degree, that is what's going on with Intel and CPUs. Honestly, on you know, the desktop and in the data center, AMD has been killing them for a while. Certainly in the x86 side of things, but what about ARM? I mean, that's a big player now. Well, and they mentioned that in the story here that, you know, Ampere with its 80 and 128 core machines have definitely been getting scooped up by the hyperscalers who care mostly about, you know, cores per rack unit or performance per watt. And, you know, 128 cores, even if they're 
not as fast as the Intel ones, if you get a lot more of them for less power, then I can get more work done for less money. That's the really unfortunate thing for AMD when it comes to Epic. Epic's curse is that it's too different from Intel for data center managers to just immediately rush out and adopt it. And it's too similar to Intel for the data center managers who are like, screw it, I'm ready to look at you know radically different and better things to go for because those folks are going to bypass AMD as well and go straight to the ARM stuff for the you know much higher density with uh, you know higher power efficiency. Thermal and power efficiency is really where it's at. When you're talking about dense data center builds, you want to be able to do the work not necessarily the fastest way possible on a single core per core. You're looking to be able to do the same volume of work while generating less heat and consuming less power because that's going to allow you to pack the machines in to a denser space. It's going to be cheaper to do so because you need less cooling, you know, in place to do it. It's just, it's huge wins all the way around. So I I hate that for AMD, but that is unfortunately the real Achilles heel to Epic is that it's better than Xeon, but not so much so that the people who are actually willing to switch from Xeon are going to pick it rather than going even further afield. Yeah. Amazon's Graviton CPUs, again, ARM-based and they're cheaper to rent because they use less electricity and Amazon can pack them in tighter so they take up less physical space. And, you know, they had DDR5 and PCIe5 before any of the x86 options. But yeah, I think it is a little sad that Epic is too different and not different enough at the same time and is gets stuck in this kind of interesting spot. But for some workloads, it is still a better option. You know, there's a reason why Netflix is, has gone in pretty hard on it, but they're also looking very hard at ARM. There was some interesting stuff, starting with Ice Lake and this new Sapphire Rapid stuff. Intel's AVX512 has a new vectorized version of AES and the carryless multiplication and so on. So specifically, AES GCM that's used by things like HTTPS, IPsec, and WireGuard. If the CPU has the special instructions and your software is able to take advantage of those, it pretty much 2Xs the encryption and decryption speed, which is a big difference. But AMD's Zen 4 architecture is going to have this as well a little bit later, but AMD is also getting their stuff out sooner, so probably arriving around the same time. The sets of CPUs will have support for all of this and see a real doubling of encryption throughput. It's not very often we see anything in computers where just this small upgrade is going to actually double the throughput of anything. So it's really interesting to see that. I think it's also worth noting that as nice as that definitely is to you know get that that double the speed from the acceleration, there aren't that many circumstances where you really need that to be doubled in the first place. Because, I mean, you look at a simple desktop CPU, and uh, I I think the last time I tested like a second gen Ryzen with WireGuard, I was getting multiple gigabits per second of throughput on just a little desktop CPU. So if you're not doing 50 gigabits plus in a data center, you're not really going to see much benefit from you know that that increased accelerated encryption speed and it makes it even worse when you talk about the you know we're also we're not talking about like little dinky desktop processors with a couple of threads here or there we're talking about you know the monsters <laughs> when you've got 64 cores it doesn't really matter much if one core is saturated saturating your your line rate for encryption or only at 50% to saturate your line rate for encryption right And this feature is in some of the newer desktop CPUs as well. 
doing a, a little look around as we're looking at implementing this for FreeBSD, looking around some of the later gens of the framework laptops. Those CPUs have it, but the first ones don't and so on. But yeah, I see your point there. It's also who's doing that much encryption if it's not literally a VPN endpoint or HTTPS offload box or whatever. And there's some drawbacks, as with a lot of this AVX512 stuff, especially on Intel, it turns out while you're using it, it can mean the core runs at a lower speed. And so any other things in the same region will actually end up getting slowed down, where using this acceleration could cause other workloads on your box if they're not scheduled on other parts of the CPU to actually run at a slower clock speed. Yeah, and AVX512 is also notorious for consuming an absolute ton of die space that you can't use for anything else. Much like we talk about the super important thing in a data center is how many boxes can you pack into the you know given amount of space and cooling you have available, that competition is even more fierce You know when you're talking about the die of a CPU and like what can you put on it, what can you physically cram on there, and also, again, what can you cool? You know, it's, it's the same concerns on a smaller scale with the competition being even more fierce. And not all of the reason, but part of the reason AMD has so many co- more cores available than Intel builds right now is because AMD isn't shipping AVX 512. AVX 512 is a significant part of the die space, particularly, you know, on like the, the desktop, you know, like Ice Lake and, uh, and Tiger Lake CPUs. Also, part of that in Intel's attempts to work around that has meant AVX 512 has a really loose meeting and there's like seven different versions of it with different letters after it. And it's like, this CPU supports some of those instructions, but not all of them, because we only wanted to put die space for the ones we thought people would use. That's just how Intel do, though. If you can have 20 SKUs for something, they're not going to only use 19. Right. And their arc page isn't going to necessarily make it clear which one has what. God, no. But, you know, Risk Five is running into this where they... Their instruction set, they're like, not just for the AVX stuff, like every instruction is going to be optional. <laughs> and no two CPUs are ever going to be the same and cause all kinds of problems there. And the Intel also had the, the really special one with like the Alder Lake, where the performance cores had the AVX 512 stuff, but the efficiency cores didn't. Yeah. And this would cause applications to bomb out. Yeah, to crash if the scheduler wasn't aware and would try to move an AVX 512 task from a P core to an E core fun stuff. Yeah. And so they're like, we're just going to issue a BIOS update that disables AVX 512 globally. Which tells you how great that was. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, And for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some feedback then. Emil wrote, Pleasantly surprised about the coverage of the Bitcoin Core developer getting his BTC stolen. 
It was actually a pretty fair characterization of the drawback of having full control, and that it is worrying that this guy is making commits to Bitcoin Core. However, I was missing the part where you go through what he should have done to make sure this did not happen. Best practice is not to store a key holding that much Bitcoin on a regular computer. Instead, use a dedicated hardware wallet that only talks to the rest of the world through a USB cable connected to your computer. You can take it even further and only move signed transactions from the hardware wallet with an SD card to avoid the USB attack vector. The private key should also be backed up as a seed phrase stored in something fire-resistant like metal. To take it even further, you could require that multiple private keys are needed to sign a transaction, like three out of four. This way, if someone tries to rob you, the two of you will need to take a road trip together. That it seems that this Bitcoin core developer did not appear to do any of this is truly terrifying. Yeah, I mean, we could have gone into cold wallets and uh, hardware wallets with keys and and all this stuff in the first show, but the problem is it it just kicks the can a little bit further down the road. It doesn't really solve issues that might or might not have kept this particular developer from losing all of his Bitcoin. He doesn't know how he lost it, so we don't know either. This is basically the equivalent of keeping all of your money in cash in a mattress, which that's not what you should do with $3.6 million. When the word gets out that you got $3.6 million in cash in your mattress, some gentleman will going to stop by your house at two o'clock in the morning and hit you with a wrench until you turn over the cash. And, you know, you can fantasize about all the military grade locks you've put on that mattress that you like. They're still going to hit you with that $10 wrench they bought from XKCD and you're still eventually going to turn it over. It just does not fix the problem, which is that you are trying to secure far more value all on your own by yourself than any one individual can truly keep safe. You can shuffle the vectors around all you like, but ultimately it boils down to if you have a life savings worth of money readily accessible, somebody's going to take it away from you unless you have a larger organization on your side preventing them from doing that. When you're using the U.S. banking system or the banking system of whatever country you happen to be in, you might not like them. They might be jackasses. They might screw you over with like overdraft fees that they deliberately manipulate you into getting charged. And all that is valid and absolutely a reason to hate them. But on the other hand, you probably don't have to worry about somebody just wandering into the bank and walking off with $100,000 of your money and you just have to sit there and take it. Yeah, because if someone does walk in with a shotgun and demands to take a million dollars out of it, that's not your money. That's money that's insured and there's whole processes to protect against that. They're not coming in and taking your literal money. Right. So what this ultimately comes down to is to offer the same kind of security that you get from keeping your money in a bank, you have to re-implement the bank, you know, like you need a vault, you need 24-7 security, both, you know, human and automated, you need cops on call, you know, the whole deal. If you're not providing all that, then, well, you can be as much of a crypto nerd as you want to be, but you still haven't secured that money from the likely level of threat that it's going to draw. You know, if you've got 50 bucks in Bitcoin, well, okay, who cares? But long before you get to $3.6 million worth, you you can't be the only individual providing security for that much value and not expect it to get taken from you. I would like to point out also that, you know, the, the other argument that one might make about the whole, oh, well, it's like, you know, keeping cash in your mattress, saying, well, what if we just take our 
offline wallet or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And we just keep that in the safety deposit box at the local bank. But again, at that point, like what's the Bitcoin actually accomplishing for you? You're still relying on a bank to secure your money. Well, and, you know, the other thing we talked about there is what if the hardware fails or, you know, if you depend on multiple separate encryption keys on USB sticks or something, it would really suck to lose three point something million dollars because of a five dollar USB stick <laughs> that got lost or just didn't work anymore or whatever. The whole angle of like, oh, well, you know, what if you multi-sign it where you need more than one key to unlock it? Okay, great. Then, you know, what happens when you and your buddy get drunk one night and like one of you is pissed off at the other one and now doesn't want to cooperate in unlocking your $3.6 million? Like, great. Now you had a drunken spat over something and you can't get at your life savings. That doesn't strike me as a win either. Look, the very simple solution to this is... Trust the exchanges, the crypto exchanges. Nothing's ever gone wrong with those. <laughs> to answer the rest of the question, I might focus a little bit more on just the open source supply chain attack vector, like the problem of we can't trust the code that this guy publishes anymore because of this problem. And I think the real answer there is more things like YubiKeys and people actually having good best practices for signed commits in Git and so on and relying on better best practices and projects having a security team and so on that enforces that to make sure that the source code we publish for open source stuff is actually not containing malicious stuff and that we have systems in place to make sure the source code you're getting for a tool, whether it's your whole operating system or your play funny money tools, are actually from who you think they are and that the provenance of this is actually correct and that there's ways to deal with the fact that one developer's SSH key or, or PGP key or whatever got compromised, we should still have a way to make sure that the software we're using is legit and not something that got replaced with something malicious. Step one, cash out life savings. Step two, buy Dogecoin. Step three, cheap thumb drive off of Amazon. Step four, format it with butter. Problem solved. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. You know the old saying, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? The traditional approach to device security is that hammer, a blunt instrument that can't solve nuanced problems. Even after installing clunky agents that users hate, IT teams still have to deal with mountains of support tickets over the same old issues, and they have no way to address things like unencrypted SSH keys, OS updates, or pretty much anything that goes on with a Linux device. Collide is an endpoint security solution that's more like a Swiss Army knife. It gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, Mac, Windows, and even Linux. You can query your entire fleet to check for common compliance issues or write your own custom checks. Plus, instead of installing intrusive software that creates more work for IT, Collide's lightweight agent shows end users how to fix issues themselves. You can achieve endpoint compliance by adding a new tool to your toolbox. Visit collide.com 25A to find out how. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot Slash two, five, A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Michael writes... I have several poorly performing Wi-Fi clients, 
for example, 100 golf carts connecting via 802.11b, will moving these devices to their own SSID prevent the performance degrading for our other modern clients connecting via 2.4 GHz? Or will these legacy clients degrade the entire 2.4 GHz radio on the access points they're connected to? It's common practice to move IoT or other poorly performing devices to their own SSIDs, and I've been curious if this actually helps things or is just to keep them away from your other devices. So you do need to move the things to a separate SSID, but the separate SSID isn't actually the point. Everything about getting these poorly performing devices away from your more modern devices is about conserving airtime. You can't have two Wi-Fi devices on the same channel transmit at the same time. They have to timeshare. So if you have one device, like your ancient golf cart with an 802.11b connection, you know, chipset from 1998, (laughs) that's going to consume all of your airtime to move a very tiny amount of traffic, like less than a megabit. So that's not going to work. Moving it to a separate SSID doesn't necessarily accomplish anything. If the rest of your devices are on 2.4 gigahertz channel one, and so are your golf carts, it doesn't matter if they're on the same SSID or not. They still can't talk at the same time. So your golf carts are going to screw everything else up right along with them. So the solution here is you need to have your separate SSIDs on separate channels, and they need to be non-overlapping channels. This is a thing I've seen a lot of people get confused about, rightly so. You might think that there are 11 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi channels, but practically speaking, there are really only three. The three non-overlapping channels are 1, 6, and 11. If you pick a different number that's in the middle of those, it's going to overlap on both sides. So if you set your network up on channel three, then it's going to overlap with both channel one and channel six and make everything worse everywhere. So in our example here with the golf course, we would want to, for example, put the golf carts on an SSID that lives on 2.4 gigahertz channel one, and then put everything else on a separate SSID on 2.4 gigahertz channel six. If you do that, they're not competing for airtime. The golf carts are competing for airtime with one another, but that's probably not really going to matter too much. And it won't screw up web browsing or you know alarm monitoring or whatever else you've got going on on your I'm not a golf cart SSID. Yeah, whether it needs to be a separate AP or not, mostly comes down to the radio and so on. But yeah, what Jim is saying is you want to get those channels separated so that All those people aren't trying to talk at once, especially since anything talking B is going to talk a lot slower. So it takes a lot more airtime to get a small message across than something more modern would. And obviously, you want to try to push as many of the modern clients into the five years as you can to keep them as far away from that nonsense as you can. The other piece of advice that I would give you is uh, it's always a good idea when you have issues like this to run a tool like Insider, which is spelled I-N-S-S-I-D-E-R on a laptop and just kind of do an airtime survey because you may discover that although if you just put your router on automatic, it always wants to go on channel one, you may discover when you look at your airtime monitor that your neighbor's stuff is like just constantly crapping up channel one and you really ought to be going to a different channel with less utilization. And you do need a tool like Insider to figure this out because what a cheap router is typically going to do is it's just going to look for the total number of SSIDs attached to that channel. And that's not the important stat. It's not about the number of networks. It's about the amount of airtime that's already being used. Yeah, which might correlate to the number of clients, but it might just one really chatty client can clog up the channel forever. And so, yeah, being able to know what 
airtime is available and try to to maximize use of that. The kind of advantage you probably have at a golf course is you probably don't have a lot of other people's Wi-Fi leaking out into the middle of the golf course. But a site survey and using a tool like Jim mentioned to make sure that even the internal uh, Wi-Fi at the pro shop that deals with credit cards and stuff that maybe people can't connect to, but making sure that's not also overlapping. Yeah, airtime is going to be the the thing that you're going to run short of. Although also along those lines, please don't connect your credit card machine over Wi-Fi. Plug a wire into that thing. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Mastodon, jrs.com slash Mastodon. You can find me on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.